you know, I was scared to put my hand up and ask for help. And when I did, I was isolated, immediately told to go home and fuck off because they wanted no one else to get crook. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Between those going to a I could never often. not go back. Yeah, they were my friends and they felt the top like of us. Like she did say, fight. you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Mick Bainbridge is a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment. Mick spoke with Angus Horden about his special forces training, deployments overseas, the toll it can take, his difficult transition out of the military, and his growth following those experiences. Mick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Mick, can you tell us about your childhood, please? Uh, yep, I was born in 1984 at St George Hospital in Cogra. My parents uh, lived in Padstow where I, I grew up, went through the public school system, have a, an older brother, Tim, and a younger sister, Laura. We, we had a good, a good upbringing, just a blue-collar family, that middle class. Mum and dad struggled through, I guess, financially, but we always had everything we ever needed. And, yeah, I remember my father was a mechanic, and he'd often work, you know, sometimes six or seven days a week. So he had a, a pretty hard, you know, working life. And mum worked a few jobs and, and also supported his business throughout the years. So they've just recently retired. So it's really great, you know, for my brother and sister and I to see them do all those things that they've wanted to do forever. And when did you first think about joining the military? When we were kids, we had some family friends whose sons were in the army and uh, I think we would go camping and I was just always captured by by their stories. And I knew probably then as a probably a six or seven-year-old that was that was going to be the way I went. I always played with the old G.I. Joe men and played armies and stuff like that as well. So um, it's just one of those little boy's dreams to, to get up and, and do it for real. So where were you when 9-11 happened? I remember I'd just gotten home. It was late that evening. I'd been out with friends and, and turned on the TV and I was still at school, high school. It was kind of an interesting point of time because I, I had a feeling then that that very moment was going to, to shape my adulthood. Uh, I knew I was going into defence. I knew that that's where I'd be and I wasn't sure that it would perhaps be an event that created you know, an engagement or a war space that's lasted nearly 20 years. But, um, but that was, it was probably one day I'll never forget. So when did you sign on the dotted line? You know what, ironically, it was a, a few months after that, coming to the end of my HSC at high school. I knew the army was for me. I, I, I tried at school, but I guess I never really fit the, the learning model. It wasn't that I was a, a, a bad student or anything. I just, it just wasn't my thing. And I, I think I realised now I learned in a very different way. So can you tell us about your basic training? I remember going to Kapuka uh, straight after I finished my HSC. I didn't go on schoolies or anything like that, which I, <laughs> I had my regrets after ending up at Kapuka. But um, I remember hating it for the first few weeks and I, I couldn't stop thinking to myself, uh, 
what have I done? <laughs> I should have got a building apprenticeship or something. And I think after a while, I learned to relax into it and enjoy the mateship that, that it even started then at Kapuka. So the unit that you joined to actually go to Kapuka was? The 1st Commando Regiment at Mossman. I had a, a few uncles that had been around in the Vietnam era and they told me that it's always smart to, to, I guess you could call it, try them before you buy it. And I'd been sort of captured by that unit and what they were doing and been to a few open days. And, um, yeah, that, that was initially where I was heading. It was just, a, yeah, the Green Beret unit. And I, I liked, I was really uh, taken by the history of, of the Green Berets coming through, you know, World War Two and, and, you know, the old snake boats and, and the crate and all those stories. And, in fact, where my father had his workshop in Concord or Mortlake in Sydney, there are a lot of uh, former commandos and, and people that were actually involved in those raids that, you know, I'd listen to their stories and, and just I, I'd never stop thinking about it day and night as a kid. So with no military experience, you're not content with just getting some basic training. You're seeking out the best of the best at the beginning. Yeah, look, I, I was. There's probably a lot of naivety there as well, but I, I certainly wanted to do more than the, the average Joe. And I guess I got more than I bargained for by the end of my career. So, Can we talk about the actual training for special forces? Well, initially when I'd gone down that path, I'd learned of a direct entry scheme that had started and you could virtually they were feeding civilians straight through the military system and into the special forces model. And after I'd finished my recruit training at Kapuka, I went to infantry training school at Singleton. And then from there, a few extra courses later, uh, you had to do a, what was called like a special forces barrier test. I believe it was uh, three or four days where they test your ability to work under pressure uh, without sleep, I guess without as much food or rest. And uh, you'd have to do pack marches and, and runs and, and swims in certain times. It was, it was a pretty gruelling few days. And that basically was your ticket to, to go then and be part of the Special Forces Selection Course, which for the Green Berets at the time was about a six-week program and it was a, a fairly grueling time probably not something i'd ever want to experience again but uh again you know you make good mates along the way a lot of people were dropping out in the the first few days and uh i think when i had finished that course i'd i'd looked like i'd you know been in a prison camp because i was, I was skin and bone by the time i'd finished it Mick, if you go back to your first day when you turn up at the parade ground and you look around both sides of you and you see all these line of guys lining up with you can you think back of that time where you may have had a university professor on your right and then on your left could have been a guy out of jail? Do you remember these guys and indeed how many of them actually stuck with you till the end? Yeah, I, I do remember a lot of faces that have been and gone. A lot of blokes had pulled off, off the course, either with injury or, or voluntarily pulled the pin, uh, deciding not not to want to pursue that career after, you know, the first week. And then there were a few others who I worked with throughout my whole career right until uh, discharge and uh, are still in. So, you know, they're, they're probably still putting their bodies through that, that hell, you know, and that experience. For the guys that couldn't make it, did you find that they pulled out more because of physical or psychological? I think it was a healthy mix of, of both. You have to learn to have, you know, a strong resolve to get through. And there was days where it was really hard because you, you don't have a watch, you don't know the time, they don't tell you what's next, you don't know what the program is, so you never really know what's around the corner. And I think the mental game is 
just as much if not more than the physical game in that sort of environment and like you said before there were, there were people from all walks and all backgrounds we had you know ranging from doctors to surgeons to to a rocket scientist in in one of the special operations teams to physios to people with finance backgrounds lawyers it was really a mixed bag and i i i still believe to this day that that's what made the workforce in the second commando regiment such such a strong one because of the diversity in background so tell us about how you eventually get your Green Beret. I got through the course and back then it probably wasn't as formal as it is now and I uh, had a small parade and, and we got our Green Berets and uh, I've, I've still got mine at home. It's, um, it's, it's pretty tattered, but yeah, it just gets locked away in a trunk now. Mick, can we talk about the transition from one commando to two commando? Uh, yeah, well, they had a direct entry uh, scheme running at the time. So there were already a crew going through Singleton Training School for the infantry school. And I'd signed over and, and jumped on the back of that. So it was more or less a simplistic Uh, Once I got through the selection course, a matter of signing over. And then after that, you know, it's, it's still not over at that point. You still have to do around two years of what they call the reinforcement cycle. So you learn all your insertion skills like parachuting and your amphibious skills and swimming out in the ocean at night and parachuting into the ocean with your your boats and putting them together in the ocean. You do your close quarter combat skills for counterterrorism and, you know, close quarter fighting and and all of those assaulting sort of roles that you need to be a, a fully formed operator in the unit. I mean, they're all, with respect, very gutsy things. Not the average person would enjoy swimming across the harbour in pitch dark, worrying about a shark attacking them, and you're just focused on doing your job. Yeah, well, fortunately for me, in uh, swimming across the harbour at night, I was I was always a terrible runner. I always came last or just scraped through my running, but my swimming, I was, I was actually pretty bloody good. So I knew that if there were any sharks about, I'd, I'd be the last one to be eaten, I think. You only had to swim faster than the other guy. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Mick, with the training, can you talk about those long, hard runs, you know, like the 26 milers carrying the 70 kilos? Yeah, look, I I think uh, I really had to get used to when I was training for for special forces to not have headphones in and listen to music. I had to really learn to deal with deal with the pain and and deal with the rhythm and uh and just get to it and i'm a fairly short bloke so i was always jealous of the blokes with the long legs that seem to be doing it easier but you know it's just a matter of resolve and being able to put all of that pain and and those thoughts into a certain place deep down and and get on with the job often you'd get to the end of those those pack marches and and blokes would take their socks off and and with it would come the sole of their foot so uh, and then they tape them up and put them back together and and do it again the next day. So Mick, how old were you then? I was 20 when I came through, so... Physically, you're at a great age and you've spent a couple of years now full-time with this training and testing yourself and all the rigorous demands at the highest level. At that age, being 20 and coming through, I believe I was one of the, the younger, youngest blokes at the time. But I could see with the older people around me, I, I still had a lot to learn. And uh, and they really did take me under their wing and, and mentor me along to make me, I guess, the soldier I became. Besides major overseas deployments, some of the roles for commandos include domestic counterterrorism and personal security details. Do you have any standout memories of those that you'd like to share? Well, I would say that I spent uh, one rotation on the Federal Domestic Counterterrorism Team, which is the Tactical Assault Group East, or commonly known in the in the unit as TAG East, and that was uh, you know my job 
on that team was an explosive entry operator. So, you know, blasting through doors and walls and anything else that's in the way, I, I guess. And that was a very exciting, fast-paced, you know, sort of experience. And I often laugh now because it's a base nearly within a base and they have very high walls and I thought it was to keep everyone out. But um, after working there and, and seeing the hours that we would actually put into that training and to be the final result, if there ever unfortunately was the need to, to use such a force in Australia, the walls were definitely built to keep us in, to keep us working. So the hours were extremely long and, and the pressure was uh, extremely high. In 2011, when I was on the Tag East, the counterterrorism team, I was picked to, to be part of a security detail for some members of parliament in and out of Afghanistan. So we would fly over, do a handover with the federal police and then take members of parliament, I think it was Rudd and Gillard and a few others, in and out of Afghanistan. It's a fairly taxing role. It's a good role, but um, you know you have to plan and account for absolutely everything because the threat probably unlike looking after a, a dignitary here in Australia is is absolutely a multi-dimensional threat in places like Kabul and, and Afghanistan. I was going to imagine it would probably be a bit funny that it would be one time in your life where instead of you waiting for a prime minister to speak to you, you could be telling a prime minister where to sit and what to do. Yeah, look, you do have a few chats to them along the way, um, but uh, most of it's, it's all business and you're out doing your job so they can do theirs. I think it, it was probably a great opportunity for them to see the type of threat level that our, our troops overseas deal with on a daily occurrence. I would think at a guess that uh, when you brief them before you go on each job or each um, task, it's quite intimidating to the outsider to hear the medical plans or, or to know that they'll be put in a car and then we'll extract them and, and stay there in the fight and quite possibly not make it back to the base. It'd be quite sobering for them, actually. Absolutely, which, which uh, you know, is a good thing for the business. They, they get to actually understand that when they're making their decisions, I guess, at the higher levels of government, that uh, at the end of the day, there's still people out there that have to carry those decisions out. Mick, you've done quite a number of deployments. Can we start with your first tour of Timor, please? I remember that one quite well. It was in 2006, and I'd booked a trip to go over to Canada. And I, I guess at this point in my career, I'd thought that not much is going to kick off. Afghanistan looked like it was wrapping up from our perspective. And then Timor kicked off. I was told to go home, pack my bags and be back at work in a few hours. So I, I did that. And we were told that we'd be in Timor for, you know, one, two, possibly three days. And it ended up been in Timor for about five and a half odd months. So we did a, a range of jobs over there from moving through the villages to helping the, the police and, and our federal police that were working there to breaking up riots, interdicting cars with helicopters to helping the police uh, resolve a few murders that had occurred. So it was, it was a really fantastic opportunity as a young soldier to go to a place that wasn't necessarily a full war zone such as Afghanistan. And I always, in describing Timor, talk about my adolescence in the military. And I think it was a nice entry point in terms of uh, trips away to start there. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I got to go to Timor and become a better soldier before Afghanistan. So going on to Afghanistan, where I understand you served four times, 
Let's talk about your deployment there. My first deployment to Afghanistan was in 2007, so only a few months after returning home from Timor. And it was a, it was a very kinetic and intense deployment. I think there was about 60-odd uh, members of the company there from Alpha Company at Two Commando. They've played around with the stats, but I think in the five-and-a-half-odd months of that tour, there are around 530 kills that that had been struck up on that tour. So as you can imagine, in the early days, you know, around 2006, it, the fighting was was more prevalent than the IEDs. But then in the later years, I guess the IED technology had sort of transferred into Afghanistan and it became a more prevalent weapon that was used against us. My second tour to Afghanistan was uh, only a few months after the first one. It was in 2008. And again, it was a, a fairly kinetic operation. And on that trip as a mortarman, we still had some fairly hefty engagements. But uh, to, to be completely honest, after so many trips, it, it does start to blur the lines of what was where. And I do have a few maps of, of where I went. My third tour was in 2010. And in training for that tour a few months before in South Australia, we'd lost a close friend of ours, a good, really great bloke from the company uh, named Mason Edwards, who was uh, shot and killed uh, in training. And uh, I think we all took a pretty hard hit. I, I did especially. Um, I remember working on Mason and it was a really hard thing as a young guy to come to terms with because I always felt prepared in Afghanistan that we may lose someone. And I think uh, having it happen at home as, as an accident really rattled me. And uh, a few months later, we went back for the 2010 tour. And uh, on the 21st of June, part of or three quarters of the way on that tour, we had a, a, an incident where we had a, a Blackhawk crash at about three o'clock in the morning. Uh, we were heading on a, on a job to a village not far from where we were based in Tarancot. It was about a 25 or 20 minute flight. And uh, the helicopter came over a mountain and they were using the mountains and, and gaining speed and you'd go up and down like, you know, like a roller coaster. And uh, I remember just seeing the helicopter ahead of us hit the deck and, and dust go everywhere. And I, I still couldn't put together what my eyes were seeing and, and what I was realising was happening. I, I, I kept looking around thinking that's, that's not where they're meant to land. But um, I quickly realised that, yeah, they'd, they'd hit the deck doing, I think it was around 250 or 270 kilometres an hour. And uh, we got down on the ground fairly quickly and started pulling the guys out and putting them onto our helicopters to get them out. It was a, a pretty chaotic scene on the ground. It's one of those things, I think you just go into automatic sort of mode and, and your training kicks in. You treat the guys who needed treating as quickly as possible and, and got them on the helicopters out and uh, were left to, to clean up the mess. So unfortunately on that that job alone, we lost uh, three of our blokes and uh, and two Americans. So it's it's probably one of the bigger events in my career that still affects me to this day. So you can see that black hole going down. You guys rush to go in and help them. And basically, were you able to get any guys out of that? We did get uh, all of the blokes out. Two of them had, had died on the scene and another en route back to the hospital. I believe that uh, one of the Americans had passed away on the scene as well. So to make matters worse, the, the wreckage was on fire. I, I recall the, the door gunner had a lot of ammunition that was actually cooking off in the fire. So not only were we doing our best to treat the casualties and triage and get them back on the, the aircraft, we were also sort of being fired at from rounds from the fire indiscriminately. 
So I remember taking a knee at one point and just having them kicking the dust up everywhere all around us. Really isn't an unusual thing in Afghanistan, but normally you have someone shooting them at you. And had any hostiles come on to you at that stage? No, we were very lucky that uh, no one had. But I, I, I remember as the sun came up, I remember I'd, I'd never ever seen more American helicopters in, in the sky, Apaches and, and the small bear beams and pilots just really, you know, I think they dropped everything and came to make sure we were all right. You know, and that, and that was a lovely thing about working with the Americans. In my time in the RSL, I, I hear a lot of older ex-service members say that you go the opposite way to the Yanks. Well, I, I found it very different. I, I think they're, they're absolutely lovely people and more times than I can count, did I see an American soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes? Mick, going back to your first day in Afghanistan, do you remember the actual smell of the country when you arrived? I remember they had a huge burn pit hopping off the aircraft at Tarankot and it was still a dirt runway. So it was dry, dusty. I think I'll, I'll never forget the smell of the aircraft when you hop off them and then when you get it was like a punch in the face, the heat and the burn pit. And I always hated that burn pit because they would burn everything from lithium batteries to asbestos to human waste. You know, it was a disgusting cesspit of smell that you had to sort of live near uh, and, and right next to and on top of for the next, you know, five or six months. And this is welcome to country. Yeah, pretty much. That was uh, the Afghan version of welcome to country. What was life like on base? My first tour was, um, it was just a bizarre sort of Mad Max world. The Special Forces had, a, again, a base inside a base. It was fairly isolated. And I remember we had little huts called bee huts and they were just a very basic plywood construction. They were just like human-sized cubby houses, but they had a small air conditioner. You would share these, these little huts with, you know, six other blokes from your team. And in between each hut was a, like a concrete sort of barrier so i guess the idea was if if a, an enemy uh, shell came in it would hopefully only kill the people in that sector and not the six huts along the row and then you know when the alarm would go off everyone would run out and run into the little bomb shelters but i think after you're in country for a while and you become a little indoctrinated you'd be watching a dvd or something in your downtime and if the siren went off you'd be more likely to just stay in bed and keep watching your dvd and and you sort of figure well i guess it's this whole place is built on chance it doesn't matter how good you are it's the stray round or zigging instead of zagging that gets you done so and typically the attacks on the base would be an odd mortar or yeah an odd mortar or a, a round that they've found and, and set off with a washing machine timer and often when they'd get to the, the launch site there'd be nothing there. So I think they were happening every sort of few days in those first tours but uh, as time went on the base became more evolved and more uh, tech savvy in terms of you know, having the ability to track where those rounds were coming from significantly faster than the early days. And, and do you remember your first patrol? In the early days we would go out in the vehicles a lot uh, again, the IED threat was there, but it was certainly not at what, what it was in later years. And we would spend up to, you know, 30, 40 days out in those vehicles and, and night after night, you would be, you know, walking in on a village or out. They were just fairly taxing and exhausting uh, sort of tours. Mick, can you walk us through your first contact? Uh, well, one of the first that I think I probably recall the most vividly was at a place called the Five Ways. It was north of the base where we were and uh, they also called it the Octagon. I believe it, it had a mention in Chris Masters' book that was written not long ago. And yeah, basically we would kept pushing down into this little valley and, and we just kept getting lit up by the enemy. Just turned into an all-out 
I guess, uh, brawl for nearly two days. So we had guys trying to move across the position that we're getting uh, fired at and, uh, and the cars getting shot up. And um, I think I always in the back of the car on on the 50 cal, I always had a, a yeah. You know, we had a lot of uh, mortar rounds lined up for the mortar tubes, and uh, one or two uh, when they got shot, we always thought, oh no, they must be a safety feature. They won't go off if they get shot. And when we got back to the base, probably a few weeks later, we put one out on the range and shot at it and went off. And it really, it really rattled my confidence in uh, the amount of explosives you're standing around when you're trying to have these big uh, heavy weapon fights. Are there any memorable patrols that you'd like to chat about? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think the earlier patrols were fairly memorable, as painful as they were, but being out in the cars, the old Land Rovers and LRPVs, the long-range patrol vehicles for, for weeks and, and, you know, over a month at a time we've had a shower. I think just that sense of mateship and camaraderie when you're out there is, you know, all you literally have out there is each other. And many times we, we didn't have air support when we needed it or we knew when we'd call it yet it'd be a 40-minute wait to get it in. So I think uh, you aggressively look after each other at all costs and, you know, it, it's the small things that I laugh about now but I, I guess I'll never miss, like taking your clothes off at the end of the patrol that you've been wearing for, for a month straight in 55-degree temperature and, you know, you would go out in brand-new uniforms and they would come back with holes and just be threadbare shirts some of them I, I still think would stand up by themselves if you if you sat them down. They were that filthy and, and you know, we, we literally burned stuff when we got back. So on some of these patrols, typically how big would the deployment be, number of troops for you guys? Uh, we would often go out with, you know, a couple of platoons plus snipers and mortars and uh, you would often split up either to, to coax in a fight or to tempt the, the Taliban to, to have a hit at us and then we would try and come in and join the fight and, and have a hit back. War has its hardships, but it also has some lighter moments. Are there any particular funnier times that you can recall? Having been from a unit that's lost a lot of blokes over over the engagement in Afghanistan, I, I always have a laugh at some of the nights we had having a few beers back at the base and, and some of the mischief we'd get up to and, uh, you know, having a still running at the base. I think Australian soldiers have, have never really changed. They do anything to get, get a drink no matter how bad it is. And, yeah, just having a drink or guys breaking into the the, the booze locker and cutting a hole in the back of it of the shipping container thinking they wouldn't be found out later but um i think they're the things we catch up and have a laugh about when we catch up around anzac day and you know it's a, it's a weird thing catching up with with buddies you've served with because we wouldn't talk for years sometimes and then when you talk on anzac day it's like you, it you only talk yesterday so uh and we still have a bit of a chuckle about some of the blokes doing some silly stuff you were talking about how two commando was achieving a lot of kills, but equally you guys sadly received a lot of kills yourselves. How did the mortality get to you about losing mates? Our first sort of tour into Afghanistan, we in Alpha Company, we were fortunate enough not to lose anyone. So I think there was still this boyish naivety that uh, it was still fun. And uh, even with being blooded on, on that first tour, I think that we still felt reality hadn't really hit home yet. And we all knew it was the reality, but I think it hadn't really been in our face. And when our losses did start to build and, uh, you know, losses across the Defence Force, not just our own, we've, we felt every single one of them. I think that it was really a sobering sort of wake-up call to everyone in that space. And I, I think 
you know, what's unfortunate is the public weren't really fully aware of the great job we were doing over there. So every time we lost someone, it, it really didn't get too much of a mention. Let's talk about your life back home. When did you meet your wife? I met my wife on my way over to Afghanistan. I was actually on an Emirates flight to Dubai to look after the parliamentarians that were taking trips into Afghanistan. I was put on a plane and I think defence must have stuffed up somewhere along the line and I was put on business class. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell when uh, someone hasn't been in business class before because they completely abuse the bar and test the seat out and, you know, have a bit of fun. But um, I went down the back to cattle where I'd normally be sitting and I was going to have a chat to the boys and I, I saw this, uh, this stunning girl sitting there uh, watching a movie and she was a passenger and uh, I went back to my seat. I had a, another drink for some Dutch courage and I, I rang her up on the seat phone and the first time I, I called her, you can call in between seats, the first time I called her, she hung up on me <laughs> and I called her back again and, and invited her up, up for a drink and uh, the rest is history. So it was uh, probably one of my, my nicer trips away. I, I met the most you know, beautiful girl that I could imagine and uh, who's now my wife and, yeah, I, I guess it's a bit of a, old-time uh, soldier story meeting a, a hostess on their way to a war zone. You wouldn't be the first. Yeah. <laughs> so Mick, you're up to about your fourth tour of Afghanistan by now. Were you finding it a bit of a struggle, the active service? Absolutely. I, I would come home and the careers are fairly isolating careers. So you go away for long periods of time, you come back and you still socialise with your buddies you've been away with. And it's very easy to find yourself disconnected from the wider world and I think after the crash I, I really started to realise that uh, I was emotionally exhausted and I probably wasn't thinking about things and being fortunate enough to have family in Sydney I think they realised I mean had pointed out that I was becoming probably a, a little bit darker in my demeanour and, and not really engaging with them or anyone else that I had normally. And Mick how long had you been in active service by now? Uh, by then, it was about uh, 11 years. And the last number of these years had been serious deployments, Afghanistan, etc. So you'd been at the pointy end now for a long, long time. Yeah, at the pointy end with, with a short turnaround between trips. Look, I, I know I know the thought that it's important that people get up and keep doing the job and, and get on with it. And that's that's the sort of company line that I hear all the time. But at the end of the day, we're all still human and I think uh, once you've reached a certain level of exposure, like any job, there should be some sort of requirement to take a, a step back and see where you're at and if you could, keep going. If you're not, you maybe need to reassess. And uh, I think there was a really unhealthy approach to, to mental health uh, around that time in 2011 and 12 and 13 and I think it still has a long way to go in defence in terms of people being able to put their hand up and say, hey, I, I love my job, I want to keep doing it but I just need a bit of help to, to get over a few of these speed humps. So Mick, did you put your hand up? I certainly did. I put my hand up. It took a lot of guts, you know, to admit that I was struggling with something. I think that it's a fairly masculine sort of world, the military. And, you know, I always kept up with the Joneses. I was always, you know, aggressive when I had to be. I'd, I'd been in some of the bigger contacts that we'd been involved in. I'd proved my worth overseas. I'd never backed down. And, uh, you know, I was scared to put my hand up and ask for help. And when I did, I was isolated, immediately told to go home and fuck off because they wanted no one else to get crook. I don't know his personal reasons for behaving like that. Perhaps 
he felt that he had to to come out stronger because he hadn't measured up the same as other blokes had and and really had the opportunity to go out and test their metal I'm, I'm i'm not sure so do you think it was that man or was the whole system a bit like that then i think at the time it was a systemic approach and it was the default setting for anyone that that was having issues i i don't really think anyone understood it and we can see that now in in the figures that have come out from last year there've been 85 veteran suicides and five of those suicides were from two commando in all different peer groups so i think they've identified now that it, it doesn't matter where you're from you know or what your job is if the cup's full and you can't take any more then there's a time where there needs to be a healthy perspective from defense's part where they step back and say well let's let's not isolate these people further let's help them and and get them through this because i, I really it was heartbreaking to be treated like that because when i left defense i was leaving my family that i felt that i'd been around and, and risked life and limb for time and time again to be pushed out the back door like that i, I felt was really unacceptable and and detrimental. So Mick, how did you cope with this pressure? The pressure of being told to go away. In my position, I went home for around eight months. I fell out of contact with a lot of the unit and a lot of my mates. I guess I'd felt that uh, I'd put in all of the the effort, all of the time that I had. So were you discharged at this stage? No, I wasn't. At this stage, I guess you could say I was still trying to find my feet. For that eight months, I was really not contacted by the unit, was washed. So look, I was earning a wage, but uh, I was more or less ghosted by the unit at that time. I think that was just their way of dealing with that sort of injury at the time. And mental health injury was something that wasn't discussed and wasn't to be discussed. So you were never formally diagnosed with PTSD? I was in later months. And then I did really try to to get my transition on track. So at that time, in about 2012, they tried to force my medical discharge from defence to which my response was along the lines of, well, I have nowhere to go and nothing to do. I refused the discharge. And I had found uh, a course called the Extended Transition Program, whereby wounded veterans were able to, or service people were able to apply for this course and have the Defence Force pay for the first three years of a university education which really appealed to me because I was also suffering from spinal injuries. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to, to cut it in a, in a trade such as the building industry. I, I knew I had to do something that was a bit more realistic in terms of my ability to continue working. My main goal at that time was to not be someone who was around the age of 30 and going on to a pension for the rest of my life. I, I wanted to be a contributing member to society that was able to earn a wage and, and be proud of what I was doing and where I was going. And thank God you had your wife to help you. Absolutely. She stood by me when I couldn't stand. She held me up when I couldn't stand. She talked for me when I couldn't talk. And uh, she was certainly the linchpin and the driving force between me getting back up on my feet to where I am now. So what was the post-military career that you were trying to look for? I'd always laughed about studying law. I felt that it was something so far out of the realms of possibility that it was never going to happen. But um, I told the army that I, I wanted to study law. They begrudgingly let me onto this extended transition program, which uh, I'll add was a fantastic opportunity, albeit begrudgingly. They sent me for 
IQ testing and when it came back they sent me again and they just kept sending me for tests but they kept saying to me it was it's highly unusual and unlikely that a non-commissioned soldier as in you know a private and not an officer would be able to successfully complete a law degree uh, even after I'd been accepted by the university and the dean of law to study that program. Look, I didn't let it dampen my spirit, so I kept pushing forward. And I find myself today now uh, at the end of a law and commerce degree, studying my final few subjects, completing my practical legal training to enter into the industry and having completed uh, the Australian Company Directors course to be a director of New South Wales RSL and state vice president with a whole swag of other skill sets under my belt now. And, and if it weren't for those opportunities, then it may be a very different story to tell. So consequently, feeling very unempowered by what they did to you, you sought to empower yourself by learning the law. And through that, you actually gained the mentorship and friendship of your mate, Glenn Kolomitz. Yep, absolutely. Being one of those those people that's always had a very pragmatic view on the people around me and and I know that uh, Glenn's one of many mentors that have really helped me redirect everything in terms of my future so I've had former defense members I've had solicitors I've had judges I've been very fortunate I've always had you know the thought that I can take something positive from each one of these mentors and Glenn's certainly been again you know another one of those linchpins that has stood beside me and and helped me in that transition he was he was really the one of the first solicitors that sort of said this is this is great this is what you're doing let me know if you need a hand and and uh, I'm proud of you for doing what you're doing so had you two met in deployment overseas yeah we we had met we didn't really become too well acquainted um I was uh, out a fair bit and uh, and he was, you know, in the headquarters. So our paths crossed a few times over the years and it wasn't until, you know, 2013 that we really started to, to hang out and I guess I was leaning to him for advice in the legal uh, career path and uh, he was certainly there to, to help me there. There's more to go between Angus and Mick about Mick's incredible journey post-military and his outlook on life today. But first, we took the opportunity to speak with a key figure in Mick's story and a previous guest on this podcast, Glenn Kolomitz. Glenn Kolomitz, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me back. Glenn, when did you first meet Mick Bainbridge? Mick and I met in Afghanistan uh, during one of our rotations um, when he was with 2 Commando Regiment and I was the, uh, the Special Operations Lawyer. That was in uh, 2010. And we caught up again later back in Australia. When did you first come across Mick after he'd left the regiment? Mick and his wife, Brooke, came to see me. I was, um, was practising law on the South Coast. Mick and Brooke, he came, came down to see me at, uh, at my house, which was also my, my practice at the time, to speak about some, some issues that Mick was dealing with in his, um, in his transition out of defence. So Mick would have remembered you, of course, for the deployments that you'd shared together over in Afghanistan. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. But plus other, other bits and pieces I'd done with peripherally with, uh, with two commando regiment, but more so from the Afghanistan tour. So you two had worked together closely in a legal capacity? Absolutely, yes. Mick began studying law uh, at Wollongong Uni and studying very, very well, incredibly well. And he, uh, he started to do some um, pro bono work with me. And my practice was 100% pro bono at that stage for veterans. So any help was appreciated? Any help was appreciated. Mick was a great help as a legal researcher, very sharp legal mind. As to every case, you're as good as your research. That's right. Absolutely right. 
So as a friend, what's it been like watching Mick's journey? It's incredible. And look, I come from a position of bias. Mick, Mick is my best mate, but um, just an incredibly smart guy, well-balanced, well-centered, good IQ-EQ balance, if, uh, if you know what I'm saying. They're good um, lived experiences and, and the good ability to book learn. But um, it's been great watching him develop, both as a lawyer and as a professional in that big, bad world of company directorship, et cetera. It's just a really, it's really good to see somebody from that, that private soldier warfighter background transitioning so well into the outside professional world. And especially coming from, with respect, such a low base. Like when he'd left the system, he was at rock bottom, and yet he's been able to climb right back up the top. It's just been fantastic. Incredible resilience. It, it, it goes to the strength of the man and, and his family, really, to be able to. You're right. He was in a pretty low space. Um, the transition process was pretty bad for Mick, and he was treated very poorly by defence. And the way he's, he's come out of that and, uh, and just developed and grown is fantastic. So why do you think his story is so important today? It's a really powerful message to all ex-defence people, all transitioning defence people, that there is a life outside defence, whether you leave because your time's up or whether you leave because you're mentally or physically injured. Either way, there's a life outside defence. And that message that Mick sends is that there are opportunities there. If you, if you can grasp them with both hands and just really take up the opportunities, there is a life outside defence and it can be a very good life. Glenn, I suppose what I struggle with is I look at someone like Mick. I look at the years and years and years and years this man has put into his training, his service, his devotion to our country. He has been at the pointy end of the most dangerous stuff. I just hate to think that our nation allows these wonderful warriors when basically they're used up just to sort of go into oblivion. Look, you're absolutely right, Angus. It's an absolute waste of resources. I would have, I would have thought defence was smarter than that, to see these, these human resources that they've devoted a lot of time and money to to develop and who have then devoted a lot of time themselves to develop themselves further, seeing them essentially spat out and forgotten. What a great asset so many of these men and women are, and mix a, mix a case on point. Surely Defence, being a strategic organisation, a thinking organisation, would, would embrace these people into the fold and say, you've left, but we still want to, want to keep you in the family. You can help us as an organisation into the future. And look at Mick, look at what he could do for Defence now in the legal and governance space, uh, in so many areas, but the legal and governance space comes to mind. I was watching his Australian story where, where you also appear, and I was watching it with my wife again just yesterday before today, and my my wife remarked, how could that guy's service not be an asset to the country in helping train our boys and girls in all the things they do? I mean, I just don't get it. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Not just training them in special operations role, not just training them in the weapons and the, and the tactics and the rest of it, but training them across the, the spectrum, how to develop, how to take up opportunities, how to fit into the outside world when they do transition out. You know, they all these sorts of areas that somebody like Mick could give back to defence and give back to, to his brothers and sisters in arms and, of course, to people transitioning out. Well, Mick being the real trooper he is, is now embedding himself strategically in the RSL. Mm. So what do you think about that position? Fantastic. It's fantastic. It's so ideally suited to, to that, that big governance, not just a big governance role, but the whole um, policy development role as well. The whole relationship with the Department of Veterans Affairs, with government more broadly, with the membership, with other ex-service organisations. He's just bringing this enormous skill set, both you know his education and his background and, and his own personality, his own very personable approach to that RSL brand to be able to, to grow the organisation, to be able to uh, deal with government, deal with agencies and uh, just a really good face of the organisation, a, young, a younger face and a really dynamic, effective, intelligent face for the organisation.
So, Glenn, if we look at positions that Mick can help us, he served our nation at the pointy end in special services. So he leaves the military. He's now serving with the RSL. I mean, what else is there for him? Look, ideally, Mick's done company directorship training and he's a graduate of the AICD. So, so I'm certain there'd be listed ASX companies that would, that would uh, flourish with Mick on board. But I'd like to see him on the board of the Australian War Memorial. I think he just ticks all the boxes and would be ideally suited to provide strategic direction down there with, uh, with our good friend, Dr. Brendan Nelson. And Glenn, look, I'm so glad that you've mentored him and and basically help him learn to do this legal speak. So I'm sure we're going to see the best years of Mick Bainbridge ahead of us. No doubt in the world. He was a pretty easy um, mentee, to be honest. Um, he's a very bright lawyer. I'm a very grassroots lawyer. And uh, Mick is, uh, honestly, I think he's uh, he's on a bit of a plane above me in that, uh, in that space. So we'll, we'll see some good stuff out of Mick in the future, I guarantee it. Well, Glenn, good people attract good people. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And now, back to the conversation with Mick. Can you tell us about any entitlements that you've been granted to? Look, my pathway through the veteran affairs system was a fairly arduous one as well. Not only did I deal with the brutality of defence and their response, I had to deal with the bureaucracy of veteran affairs. Now, at the time, I guess I, I looking back, I can put it in a box where if you fall out with defence, it can become a very personal grudge and they will come after you for anything if they're not happy with what you're doing and they will, they will do what they have to to can drive any outcome they need and uh, and but with DVA it's it's purely a, a bureaucratic process if you follow the steps you get through it and I think it was very hard for me at the time suffering a mental health injury to understand the processes and again with guys like Glenn I was assisted through it was a long process um, my first sort of dealing with DVA was fairly abrupt and there were no real explanations given as to why some injuries were, were knocked back. But uh, I did get it to the review board and, and my injuries were accepted. And uh, fortunately, you know, I was able to start moving forward from there. Look, it took, I think, four years or something for DVA to recognise you properly. It did. It's a Herculean task dealing with injuries and mental health injuries. There's three main things that I, I would say that veterans deal with leaving defence. And the first is the identity change. It's, it's very hard to accept that you've got to change your identity, which defence was a big part. I, I grew up, I was institutionalised in the, in the system and it was what I thought was my family. The second thing is your injuries, be it physical or mental health injuries, uh, which both, there's a lot of crossover. I don't think they ever exist in isolation. And and the third thing is your career change. They're three huge things to be able to achieve in, in sometimes the space of six or 12 months. And uh, at the time, the DVA system was antiquated and not really built around getting people back on their feet. It was a what I would say was a victim-orientated system. And I think you would have to go in there with a victim-orientated mentality to be able to overcome that system. I think they've made great strides now to, to improve that system. And I know of claims that are getting through in you know between three and six months, which I think if I've had any input in my term in the RSL to, to helping assist that, then I'm really, really happy about that. Mick, if listeners can recognise your name or your voice, it may be from the April 2018 Australian Story episode. That was about you. Yeah, I was pretty nervous about that one. Four days of filming and you're not sure how the edit will look after when they get 20 minutes out of it. And I saw it for the first time at exactly the same time everyone else did. Yeah, look, it was a, it was a great opportunity to do the story. I'd never felt 
to be fair, worthy of an Australian story. And I was still very nervous about, you know, putting all of that out there for the public to see everything. But um, the one driver was I wanted other servicemen and women out there to know that um, no matter what their issues are, that they should come forward because there can be a success story in their transitioning from defence, be it an injury or by choice. So, And not to endure the pain that you suffered. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's important that they know that uh, it's not the end of the road. I think with the suicide rates we've seen, my biggest goal would be to really curb that, if not stop it. And if they know they have someone like me to come to, be it in the capacity of the RSL State Vice President or in in my new role as a solicitor, then there's someone that's been in that hole and uh, is prepared to, to stick their hand down into it and help them get out of it. You've named your son after a mate that you left behind. Yep, my little bloke, uh, his name's uh, Mason and uh, he's named after Mason Karen Edwards who was killed in that training accident in uh, 2009 down in South Australia. I guess you could say we, we grew up in the military together. He was a, a bit older but uh, certainly someone I always aspired to be like and looked up to. Losing him, it was a big hit. And having my firstborn as a little boy, I I couldn't help but uh, call him Mason. So I think it's fitting. I think he's got the same sort of zest and uh, funny little character. So pretty proud of that. Let's talk about Ben Quilty. Uh, He's a mate. (laughs) But to me, I was introduced to him by the former Air Commodore John Oddy, who was second in charge of the Middle East operations. He said, you have to go and meet this bloke. He's, he's great. He lives up in the southern highlands of New South Wales. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go and see. I've never met an artist before. And I was pretty uh, ignorant to, to actually who he was. So I think I, I said in the Australian Story episode, you can imagine my surprise after a few beers when he asked me to get my gear off to do a painting. I was a, a little bit taken aback by it. What was his thoughts about that? He just wanted to show you in the raw quite literally. Yeah, he, he wanted to... He had painted a series of paintings from uh, blokes from overseas and female service people, and uh, he wanted to to really get that raw emotion, not a landscape. He, I guess, he wanted to capture the soul of the people. And at the time, I was I was pretty rattled, if not from my service, from the way I'd been treated on my way out of of defence. So I think he captured that really well. Today at home, you're a father of two, and despite your struggles, you are deeply involved in veterans' affairs in the community. For example, you're now the Vice President of the RSL in New South Wales. Can you tell us about that? It takes a lot of time. (laughs) I became interested in the RSL when Glenn was the CEO. I'd sort of seen this organisation that my grandfathers were were a part of and, and members of being veterans themselves from World War II. And it seemed to be the sleeping giant because they had a lot of money, they had a lot of ability to get in the year of government and to change things. But for the last decade or perhaps the last 20 years, they've sat back and not really been active in that veteran space. I think it became more about commemorating veteran days and and remembrance days and and rocking up the places with your medals. And I, I always saw it as the sleeping giant that really needed to change its ways and mobilize and, and use that money to better support our servicemen and women. And I saw an opportunity to be a part of that organization uh, and help change it for the better to help people like me when I was in my position and I had no one there to, to assist me. Now, I think that other groups like Soldier On and that are, are great 
but they don't really solve the root veteran issues. They don't go to the policy. They don't change outcomes for veterans at Parliament. And uh, I think that's where RSL is is a real powerhouse. And we're, we're really starting to build that back. And being the chairman of the RSL Policy Committee now, we're really starting to see where we can have an effect to help veterans before they've had a breakdown and before they've been isolated and excommunicated. Working in conjunction with groups like Soldier On is great, but uh, I think we have a lot more to offer veterans and their families. And the biggest shame is that people don't know what we do. We do a lot and we're starting to get out there and really show it. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing more of that, Mick. Yeah, absolutely. Mick, can you also tell us about the Shield Academy? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd love to. The Shield Academy, I only wish it was around when I was exiting Defence. It's a new organisation that actually helps veterans when they're leaving Defence. And being part of the RSL, I've been able to sort of find out a lot of this, this model and, and really get behind it. And I'm a big believer that it's the future. So if a service person's leaving defence, they're not often given too many options in terms of meaningful engagement and meaningful workspace. So this organisation links up with industry and finds cadetships and university studies that service people might want to become involved with and lets them have a bit of mastery of their own future. It lets them have a say in where they want to go, which I think is probably the most important thing. And uh, and not only are they supporting the veterans, you know, they are also supporting the, the wives or, or spouses or partners of those veterans who are often expected to move to a new posting location around the nation every two years. So I really think it's a, it's a great sustainable business. And if that's the future where transitions are going, I certainly think the RSL uh, will be behind it. And uh, I'd encourage everyone to get on and have a look because there are some fantastic opportunities for people leaving defence now. And it just comes back to what I say, there are options and you do have a choice. So get into it and look up the Shield Academy. And how's your legal career coming along? It's been a long five years at university. I probably am a little slower than some of the other students there. I've gained a lot from going to uni. I've got to work around some great kids that have been a great support to me as well and as I, I guess, have to them. And uh, it's taught me to think in a completely different way about things, approach matters differently. It's really changed and, and stopped that uh I guess that defence thing, which was a hard thing for anyone leaving defence. I think you have to learn to speak a little bit differently. You need to think a little bit differently and approach matters differently as well. So Mick, what's next for you now? Uh, well, look, I'll be starting my, my legal career in the, hopefully the next few months and uh, being admitted to practice at the start of next year. I'll continue to, to work with the RSL and better support veteran outcomes, be it with uh, policy with the RSL or or taking up and, and fighting for veteran rights in the courts. That's really where my passion is. And I don't think they're one small sector of vulnerable people in our society that really don't have any access to justice in terms of support from the, the state or federal government. And uh, I'd, I'd really like to see that change. How do you reflect on your time in the military today? Oh, look, I have no regrets. I had a fantastic career and, you know, I loved all the blokes I worked with. I didn't expect it to turn out the way it did. I didn't expect 
probably my exit from defence to be the way it was. But I, I guess that's life and it's about uh, learning something from every one of those incidences and, and changing it into something positive. I can't say I'd be thrilled if my son was to rush out and join defence. <laughs> you know, um, having been to uni now and starting to see the other side, I want him to do the next great thing. But um, look, if, if he joins and that's what he wants to do, I'll still support him. But I would just, you know, heed warning to anyone that uh, if they're going to do it, have, have a real think about the support mechanisms they might have on the way out of defence. And hopefully my role as a solicitor and, and working with the RSL, we can change that and make sure that there are better outcomes for people leaving uh, or deciding to join defence. Mick, it's quite a journey you've been through. You have a vital leadership role now in the veterans community. And I think with you at the helm, the future looks a lot brighter. Thank you for your service and thank you very much for coming and sharing your time with us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Those were Angus Horton's conversations with Mick Bainbridge and Glenn Kolomitz, recorded in August 2018. Glenn has been a recurring guest on our show. You can listen to his individual conversation with Angus in Season 2, Number 22, Glenn Kolomitz. He also participated in the panel discussion, Returning Home, and was featured in our Christmas on the Line end-of-year special. We would love to know what you thought of this episode. You can write to us by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Also check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, where you can also subscribe to our e-newsletter. And of course, subscribe to the show in your podcast app. And if you enjoyed hearing Mick's story, there's one more thing you can do. Jump over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars. That will really help us reach new listeners. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>